Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. It is time for Bite Into It, where we discuss everything that is new and exciting and terrifying and what the <laughs> hell is going on in the world of computers, technology, and uh, everything behind the screen. With me to do that in studio tonight is Lily Ryan. Lily, thank you. Thank no you. <laughs> you're, you're welcome. How, how, are, how are you this evening? Oh, not too bad. As always, it's been a really big news week for tech. Oh, it has. Has it just? Oh. Wow. So, um, yeah, my name is Dan Salmon and let's jump into the news of tech we've because got so we've got cover. so much to cover. Um, before we get to the news, though, um, later in the show we will be speaking. Uh, there's been a few more data breaches in the last week. Oh, dear. Seems like they're getting more frequent. Are they? We don't know. To unpack this latest one and what it means, uh, what, what, what needs to change in order to limit the impact of, of uh, data breaches? We talked to Dr. Rob Nichols, who is the faculty lead of the Institute of Cybersecurity at the New University of New South Wales. Also, uh, we're hearing more and more about governments planning to ban TikTok from official devices as well as uh, more broadly in their countries. But what does this mean and how and why is it happening? Uh, Swinburne University of Technology's Milovan Savage will be uh, calling in to give us the rundown on that. But first, let's talk news, Lily. Wow. Okay. So lots of stuff has been happening and I wanted to start us off with a bit of news that is tech adjacent. Um, if we're talking about STEM here, the M is mathematics. This is maths news. Um, I want to hear some maths news. Yeah. Maths is my jam. Yeah. Okay. So um, how excited are you about aperiodic monotiles? When you explain me to, to, to <laughs> me what they are, then I will be as excited as I can possibly be. Okay. So an aperiodic monotile is a tile of a shape that uh, when you tessellate it or you fit it together, it makes a pattern that never entirely repeats itself. Right. Okay. And so that is something that is uh, – there is a problem in the mathematical community where they're looking for the Einstein tile, mm-hmm. which is the idea that there might be one tile of a shape that could – tessellate infinitely and never repeat. Wow. Um, Historically, there have been all these problems where people have said, all right, well, here's a set of two tiles that would theoretically do this. Um, More famously, there were the Penrose tiles, which is a different set of tiles that will do that and make some really interesting non-repeating patterns. But this week, a group of uh, people have published a paper. Well, it's in uh, preprint, I think, Mm -hmm. as as all good papers are. to say that they think that they have found the first like single uh, aperiodic monotile ever. This is huge. This yeah. this is a mathematical breakthrough that yeah. you know we, we probably never saw coming or we never thought would happen. It's it's very cool. It's very cool. And you have shown me a video or a gif is it or a video of the uh, tessellating tile as it rotates and it is a thing of beauty. And also really, really hurts your eyes to watch. And your brain. <laughs> and your brain. Like it's, it's um, it, I, I encourage, we'll, we, we will, um, when we've got access to the passwords for the Twitter account, um, tweet out a link to it because it is very cool to watch. And what, what kind of applications are we talking about for it? Um, I mean, that's a really good idea. I think some of this, what's well, a really good question, some of this is, I think, just for the joy of finding a cool pattern and solving a cool problem. Like a lot of mathematics um, has very practical applications, and mm-hmm. I'm sure that this also does. But honestly, it's just 
awesome that we have this shape that can do this. I'm, I mean, in terms of physical applications, I, I don't know how many people have tattoos planned yet, but it, it'd make a pretty cool one. If we, I've, it's on my list by the looks of it. I yeah, think. yeah, like a, a, a sleeve that would never repeat. <sighs> um, anyway, the shape is called the hat. Um <laughs> I, I guess because if you look at it somehow, it looks a bit like a hat. Yeah. Um, I, I, I was saying before we went on air, I thought it looked like a T-shirt, but I suppose a hat upside down also looks like a T-shirt. Yeah. Or a T-shirt upside down looks like a hat. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> um, anyway, they have uh, generators where you can go generate infinite patterns and have fun with it, so enjoy that. Enjoy, because um, you, you need to distract yourself from all the other stuff, other stuff that's going on <laughs> in the world. Like uh, GTP, GPT-4. Um, now, we, we did touch on this uh, last week, that GPT-4, the latest iteration of um, open AI's um, language, learning, language model. learning model, thank mm. you very much, Lily, um, has been out for about a week now. Um, it's starting to be incorporated in uh, other proprietary uh, bits and pieces. Microsoft is putting it into uh, Office 365. They're calling it Copilot, and it will, according to them, do all the work that you don't want to do, like you know, taking minutes and um, yeah. sch- scheduling things and you know, slagging off your boss behind their back. Um, it'll be interesting to see what it does in Microsoft Teams. I'll be very interested to see what it does in Microsoft yeah. Teams. Oh, imagining never having to use Teams again and oh. just all the bots talking to each other and you could just walk away and climb a tree. Yeah. And, and then Skynet happens. Oh, yeah. Or that. Or that. No, look, look, it's probably a good thing if if we can all step away from Teams or Zoom or whichever particular monster you need to engage with on a daily basis, it's probably a good Mm. thing. There are are other, um, uh, uh, I suppose, um, news in that that kind of space. Uh, Google Bard is uh, being released today. So for those of you who haven't heard of Google Bard, it is um, the 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 chatbot that Google set up that uh, failed almost immediately to answer a question correctly. And oops. Oops. And <laughs> so they've thought, you know, three weeks later, let's chuck it out there. Let's see what happens. Only um, for the US and the UK. Right? Only for the US and the UK. No, well, hopefully they, they'll get it right before it gets released here. Um, I, I, I do want to uh, make one note. So the, um, the, in researching this uh, Microsoft incorporating GPT-4 into Office 365, they they put a blog up about it, which, you know, every major corporation now has a corporate blog that mm. reading it is like reading into the soul, seeing into the soul of someone who really wishes they had a different job. Like this is okay, – can I just read the opening sentence yeah, of this? Right. Humans are hardwired to dream, to create, to innovate. Each of us seeks to do work that gives us purpose, to write a great novel, to make a discovery, to build strong communities, to care for the sick. You work for Microsoft, dude. <laughs> you got like you got, like I think this person needs to go and like be a poet or something. They 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 they, they clearly are in the wrong job. My question is was that blog post actually credited to a human? My eyes are open. Probably I, not, actually. No, no, no. Actually, yeah. no. It is. It is. It is credited to Jared Spataro, the corporate vice president of modern work and business applications, or Jared's EA, or Jared's or GPT. Yeah, GPT four. <laughs> um, wow. Oh, dear. Um, speaking of uh, chatbots, uh, this is something that's a little bit less cool. Um, not that chatbots are hugely cool, anyway. Um, it. 
some they call they call themselves disenfranchised ex Tinder employees who have set up a ch- an app that uses AI chatbots to talk to women for men on dating apps. Right now, um, it, it's making some promises. They're saying that for fifteen dollars a month beta access, users can expect to get several dates a week by doing absolutely nothing, which. Um, kind of defeats the purpose of dating, if you ask me. Um, the AI algorithm will swipe on girls that are just your type and constantly works to get high-quality matches, and then a chatbot will talk with the women until they agree to go on a date and then arrange a plan time to place and place to meet. The date then gets added to the Cupid bot user's calendar. Can we go back to the bit I was talking about earlier where we leave the computers and go climb a tree instead and just go away from this whole thing? Because that's what this news is making me want to do. Yeah, it's like it really is actually making me want to turn off the computer and never engage with it again. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I know that we will see this anyway, that we've got this app that someone's developed for this specific kind of thing, but it's not going to stop people from going into, say, ChatGPT and asking it to generate pickup lines, mm, for example. Yeah, exactly. And and this, this is the problem because, you, you know, the, a, a powerful tool in the, in the hands of someone who doesn't necessarily have the best uh, intentions is never a good thing. Yeah, and with OpenAI, the company that makes ChatGPT, um, their whole mission is that they want to make an AI that's not evil, that's actually good, because they're like, well, someone else is going to make the evil one, so we should make the good one. Mm. At the same time, um, yeah, this is certainly something that can be used by anyone with Absolute, whatever intention. Yeah, and this is the thing. Last last week we were reading through, you know, the research of GPT four, mm. and they were they did, you know, the black hat testing. They were, you know, going in there and seeing what what can we get Chat GPT to do, and will it, you know. Do it well, or and they, they, they've got that conscience. But as soon as the infam- as soon as that tool is out the window, you can't control what people do with it. And no. uh, they should have. I mean, I'm sure they did think of that, but they clearly didn't think it was enough of a risk. Anyway, um, let's breathe our breathe our way through that one and um, talk about something that's also a, a little bit creepy and scary. Lily, what, what's going on with the Acropolis? Did I pronounce that right? Uh, yeah, Acropolis, Acropolis. Is, the, is what it's being called. And you can tell it's serious business because this is a security vulnerability with a themed name. And mm. it probably has a logo. I haven't checked. <laughs> um, but the Acropolis. So this is something that has been... Uh, Cropping up. I'm sorry, I'll see myself that. That was Um, good. I'm sorry, that was actually rather good. (laughs) Yes, um, has has been cropping up um, with the news in the last little while. Um, Google Pixel phones. When you there's a there's a tool on Google Pixel phones called Markup, which many of you listening have probably used. And that means you have a you can take a photograph or whatever, and you can crop it, you can draw on it, and you know mark it up and do whatever you need to do. People use this all the time for editing pictures and uploading them, and this is really good for one of the things it got used for was redacting things, so uh, crossing out the sensitive parts on a picture of a password or credit card or whatever if you needed to do that for some reason. Anyhow, um, it was reported to Google in January and patched last week that there is a vulnerability in this tool and therefore on all Pixel phones and other Android apps that use markup um, that goes back for the last five years where it is possible to recover the things that had been redacted in those images. So if you have uploaded an image to, say, Discord, which doesn't compress its images the way that, say, Twitter would, when you upload it, um, and somebody else downloads that file, it's possible to then get a lot of the metadata and extract the original image, including the bits that were originally cropped out, the bits that had 
been hidden underneath the markup and so on. And today, um, or possibly yesterday, uh, they announced that also um, the Windows 11 snipping tool um, also is subject to this same attack. And so anything that anybody has put through any of these tools, and these are very common tools and very common pieces of hardware um, or software, um, operating systems rather, and you, my brain, would get there eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, so uh, that means that it is possible that a lot of the images that have been out there floating around for the last five years uh, that have sensitive info in them that you thought was covered up might not be. Mm. So it's um, it's probably something to be aware of. If you have been you know, using those uh, particular uh devices to crop and particularly if you're covering yeah if you're redacting you know number plates or credit card details in phone on a camera and sending them um maybe maybe just uh check to check to see things uh are are not as they are as they uh, should be i think the people who released the news about the vulnerability have also built an app where you can upload your images to see if they are affected mm. um although this means anyone could upload an image to see if they're affected so another again, unint- may vary. this is it another unintended consequence uh speaking of unintended consequences we've got a lot of uh, chat to do about uh cyber tonight so we're gonna we're gonna jump to a track and uh, after that we're gonna be speaking to uh dr rob nichols from uh, the university of new south wales this is a podcast from triple r an independent media organization in melbourne australia To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. On 3 Triple R, you're with Lily and Dan on Bite Into It. And it's seeming like every other couple of days, another company puts out a press release saying that their systems have been compromised and that people should start looking out for suspicious emails and text messages because their personal details have been stolen. Last week, it was uh, Latitude Finance's turn and about 300,000 customer driver's licenses were hacked. Dr. Rob Nichols is Associate Professor of Regulation and Governance and Faculty Lead of the University of New South Wales Business School and the UNSW Institute for Cyber Security. Rob, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Great to be here, Dan. Now, Rob, it's like we were just saying, it seems like these things are happening pretty regularly. What has happened this time? Who's been impacted and is it still ongoing? It's still ongoing. So basically there were 103,000 customer records in one location and another 200 plus thousand in another location. Each of those were Latitude Financial's service providers. So it wasn't Latitude Financial's own systems, but it was some of their service providers which were hacked, two of them, at the same time. And do we do we know much more about the detail of how they were compromised? Uh, no, we know that they they were. Uh, the last uh, messages from Latitude say that the uh, process isn't over, which is uh, quite problematic because it suggests that not only is the their theft for identity theft, but if. Uh, the systems are still compromised. There's also a risk of, of ransomware as well. So we, we know that the, it's happened, 
But a bit like Optus in the early days, other than trying to get in contact with people where they know there's been a compromise, there's not terribly much information flowing from Latitude Financial. Right. Now, you, you've mentioned Optus, the, 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 the first in, I suppose, this latest tranche of, um, <laughs> of, of data breaches. Is it, is it happening more often or are we just being a bit more in tune to it? No, it, it is happening more often, um, and it, essentially, it's uh, 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 the cyber criminals. They, they just run a cost-benefit analysis. What's, what's the risk of getting caught? What is the value of what, of what can be acquired? So, for Optus, well, ten million records. If you can create. Uh, uh, make that look like an attractive set of records for somebody who wants to engage in identity theft. That's pretty useful. Uh, Medibank Private, again, you've got a large number of records, including health information. So that could be very sensitive. And so that was used for a ransomware attack, which Medibank didn't pay the ransom which was why the, the information was uh, put onto the dark web. In this case, I think it's even worse because not only is there the usual uh, personal information, but there could also be information, credit information, and worse, credit card information. So the risk is even higher. Yeah, as a credit card provider, I imagine they would have quite a lot of that information. Um, and one of the things that we learned from the Optus breach in particular was that some of the information that they held, they didn't necessarily need to have on their books at the time. There was a lot of know your customer type information that had been used for initial identity verification that had no bearing on the service that then they were needing to provide, but they had kept it anyway. Is that true in the case of Latitude Financial as well? And what's been done to address that? Okay, so the answer is yes. Latitude said that this includes uh, previous customers, so yes. I think that part of the problem is the way that people have traditionally collected information, which is to say, oh, well, if, if you need to have 100 points of ID to get uh, a telecommunications service, we should keep a copy. Whereas actually, all you really need is to be able to trust your employees. And if you can't trust immediately, get the employee to sign a, a statutory declaration that, yes, I have, I have cited 100 points of ID and the person is who they say they are. But I think actually the, the real answer is the answer that... Um, that we've started to see uh, emerging from National Cabinet, and that is to have a, a universal digital identity. I will say this is not Australia card by, uh, by stealth. This is something which is much more like the MyGov uh, or MyGov ID identity. So if you've got MyGov on, uh, service on your phone, You've at one point provided 100 points of ID, but you don't need to, to use it again. So if I walk into a bank with a national-based uh, ID and say, I'm Rob Nichols, well, the bank's going to say, all right, so you say you're Rob Nichols, you say where you, you live. Um, just open up your, your ID 
and then we'll send you a, a code so that you can verify that your ID matches what, what's said. And so it's a look, it'll look a bit like multi-factor authentication, that the, you'll be asked to tap in a four-digit PIN, uh, which is thrown to your phone, and then the bank can say, oh, yes, well, you're Rob Nichols, you are who you say you are, and we've met our know-your-customer requirements. And the same could be applied in the telecommunications sector, and in the insurance sector. So it's perfectly feasible to do this. It's just, is there enough political will to make it happen? One of the criticisms that's leveled at systems like this, um, or the development of systems like this, is the sense that they themselves would then create a honeypot of this type of information. And also that um, if you have, say, some, a code that's thrown to your phone, for example, if somebody steals your phone and uses it for those purposes, um, the identification is then thrown to the phone holder rather than the individual. There have also been recent cases where, say, uh, journalists have been able to hack into people's Centrelink accounts by using AI-generated voice prints um, to get around some of that voice ID. Do you think that there are any risks associated with this, or do you think that those ha um, have effective mitigations for what we're, what we're talking about at the scale of a uh, country's worth of identity? Okay, I, I think so. I think that's in, in three parts. First, uh, the phone device. There is always a risk of loss of a, a phone if the phone has uh, something valuable on it. Uh, but and one of the things of value might be the wallet. But typically, um, people protect the, their wallets and protect other things by using uh, a bio-identifier as well. So that might be a thumbprint. It might be a um, facial recognition. So yes, there's a risk, but we've already got built into at least more recent smartphones mechanisms to assist with that risk. On the government holding this uh, honeypot of data, well, they do. Um, so who issues the Medicare numbers? Mm, that's the Commonwealth government. Who issues passports? Well, it's the Commonwealth government. But actually, the Commonwealth government and, to a lesser extent, all of the state governments, they're pretty good at keeping secrets. So... Although there is a, a risk because there is a honeypot, actually that honeypot's there at the moment, so the risk doesn't increase significantly. And much of this stuff can be stored cold. Once you have a, an identity system, actually you just need a hash, a, a, a cryptographic representation of each of the identity pieces of information in a live server. And, and that's not of great value to the cyber criminal. I think there is an issue with what sort of biometrics you use. So the, the Guardian article on uh, using a, a not terribly sophisticated and actually free-to-use uh, voice synthesizer um, shows where systems can be badly designed. It's hard to replicate a thumbprint or a face ID if voice is a bad uh, biometric authentication tool, well, just don't use it. 
Um, and it's also important that the way that it's used. So it worked in Centrelink because Centrelink's systems are unmanned. The ATO also requires uh, or can also use voice identification when you say something like in Australia, my voice um, uh, confirms my identity. But there there's an ind a person listening in. This is not a transaction with a machine. And so there are safeguards that you can build in which actually reduce the risks. Nothing's perfect, but there are some risk mitigation strategies for all of these things. On the topic of risk mitigation strategies, uh, one of the things that you mentioned earlier was that it wasn't necessarily Latitude itself that was breached. It was the service providers that they were working with. Yeah. And that we see that often where there is a third party that's breached and that third party is something that the main company depends on for some or all of their system, especially for customer support. What can be done to prevent this kind of supply chain issue, given how heavily dependent many businesses are on each other for these core security practices? Well, I think what it means is you actually have to have a high level of supply chain governance, including cyber security governance. It is not good enough just to say, oh, well, we've got a contract with them and the contract sheets home the risk of cyber breach to them because it doesn't solve the reputational harm and it doesn't solve the harm to, to customers. So it's in the same way that the supermarkets have put a lot of effort into uh, ensuring that their supply chains don't use modern slavery. It's actually an important thing to say, well, actually, if, if, a supply, if we have a supply chain fault, our customers are going to blame us. We might say it's a, a vendor or a service provider, but it doesn't matter. Even if we say the risk is theirs by contract, it doesn't matter. We need to be able to audit their processes, and if their processes don't come up to scratch, we can't use them in the supply chain. And if that means bringing certain services back in-house because you can't be certain, well, that's, that's part of doing business. You can't, if you're going to use a supply chain, you have to actually be responsible for every element in that supply chain. Rob, it's um, I suppose in in the recent times we've seen that the onus for protecting this data has very much fallen to the companies that hold the data. Pre previous to that, it seemed like it was really about people protecting themselves. Have you have you noticed any change in sentiment around whose responsibility it is to actually look after this and st and prevent this kind of thing from happening? Oh, well, I, I think there is a, a shift, but there's a shift that says uh, from consumers. Why are you storing my data? And, and that's arguably why we need to move to uh, a centralised digital identity uh, to say, well, actually, you don't need it. If you reduce that risk by saying, well, I've, I've exchanged uh, something which gives a tick. Now, during, during COVID, we quite got used to being able to display a tick to enter into a premises, to use a QR code that chucked up a, a, a tick to say, yes, we could come in, or uh, in New South Wales, a tick that says, yes, you can go into licensed premises. This is not, this is a, a thing that consumers are well used to. 
and it would actually reduce the, both the risk, but most importantly, the cost of all of these businesses which hold this information where, sadly, it's very cheap to store information and expensive to cleanse it, to go through and find out what's stored that shouldn't be stored. So the solution is just don't store it. Um, now, that's a trite thing to say, but that's how a, a digital identity gets justified, which is, well, we reduce the risk to consumers, but we also reduce the risk to businesses. That risk reduction leads to a cost reduction, and if even part of that cost reduction is passed on to consumers, that means lower prices, which is a, a, a great outcome. Indeed, I think I think uh, less data breaches and lower prices is something we'd all like to see. Uh, Rob, we're, yeah, we're, we're going to have to leave it there. We've been speaking with uh, Dr. Rob Nichols from the University of New South Wales Business School and the UNSW Institute for Cybersecurity. Rob, thank you very much for your time tonight. Thanks very much, Dan. Triple R. You're listening to Bite Into It. It is 7.39 on a Wednesday night. Uh, you're with Lily and Dan. And it's uh, TikTok. We've all heard of it. Uh, some of us even use it. Um, I'm, I'm a bit old for that, but uh, I, I hear that young people do. However, governments appear to be looking towards banning it. Uh, in the US, it's looking like it's going to be a nationwide ban. And here in Australia, um, government is saying that device, uh, government devices will not be allowed to have TikTok installed. Uh, Dr. Milovan Savic is a research fellow at the Swinburne Node of the Australian Research Council's Centre for Excellence in Automated Design Making and Society and joins us on the phone to help us make sense of it. Uh, Milovan, thank you very much for joining us. So tomorrow the, the CEO of TikTok is going to be testifying before the US to defend TikTok. Is, is it the threat that all the governments appear to think that it is? Well, I mean, this is not the first time that they are kind of in the centre of the attention and of uh, uh, all this scrutiny and the concerns. So, I mean, you know, if you consider the previous cases when the, the similar bans were considered, I would expect that not much will come out of it, but let's wait and see what happens tomorrow. What is the uh, the rationale behind the focus on TikTok specifically? Um, I mean, this is not the first time that the US government mm -hmm. has contemplated banning it. There have been lots of discussions around the world about government devices banning it, but why TikTok? Why not, uh, you know, Facebook, for example? Yeah, well, that's a really great question. And I think it really comes down to the ownership behind TikTok. So TikTok is one or the only one, uh, like, most popular mainstream social media platform that the headquarters are not in uh, Silicon Valley, but rather in China, in Beijing. And I think that's where the key concerns and key focus on the app is coming. So it's not it's not about the app itself. I think it's more about the potential or alleged uh, connection that it has with Chinese government. And is it justified, these concerns? Well... I wouldn't say so. So uh, I haven't I haven't seen any hard evidence proving those connections. I mean, the fact is that the headquarters of the company is in China, but they are denying any uh, connections with the government itself. Um, which yeah, we can 
take them, you know, take it for granted or not. But they did provide claims as well that the data of the users uh, outside of China, so from US or from Australia and from other Western countries, are actually held outside of China. So that it's not saved on servers in in China itself. So yeah, I mean, as I said, so we can believe it or not what they what TikTok said or what other people are accusing them of. But so far, we haven't seen hard evidence proving uh, that the, there was a misuse of the data by Chinese government. The U.S. government has also put forward suggestions that one of the things that they're considering is that TikTok sh- TikTok should be sold to a U.S. company and operate from there. Is that mm-hmm. enforceable? Do they have the ability to do that? Well, that almost, almost happened. I mean, that's a really good question that you're posing. So, I mean, if you remember, maybe I'm not exactly sure when it was. It would be like 2020, I think. So at the beginning of the pandemic, so Trump was still president of the United States. And he actually gave executive order to ban TikTok. And then he gave them like, yeah, I don't remember exactly, but it would be like, like maybe 90 days or they had like three months to uh, bring on like a partner on board so that they they pretty much effectively to be sold to, to, to change the ownership and be sold to, to an American company. But that never eventuated. So somehow the whole topic, I guess, because of the uh, American elections, the focus shifted and it kind of slipped off off the radar. And um, now, two years later, we are kind of all these similar concerns or the similar arguments are re-emerging and now it's again in focus. Um, Back to your question, I'm not really sure if, if, if it's going to be enforceable. I mean, what we're seeing so far, it's mostly uh, the ban, or it could be considered first step, right? But, like, it's the ban of using TikTok on government-issued devices, not really the blanket complete ban, but it's not completely off the table either. And... When we are distracted by things, uh, you know, I mean, yes, a U.S. election is a fairly distracting type of event. Um, but TikTok itself, I feel, is being scapegoated and used as a distraction for other types of applications that are being installed on devices all of the time. I mean, it does feel a little to me like like it's a bit whack-a-mole. You're saying, well, we'll ban this one up. But if you can Absolutely. still install a um, you know a Chinese language keyboard, which is probably mm-hmm. developed in China and will also be sending metrics back there, yeah. um, any other kinds of things, and we're using this um, you know on on hardware that's often manufactured in China as well, which is at a different level of the stack. How do we Absolutely. account for the focus on TikTok specifically when the concerns seem to be much broader? Yeah, well, that's exactly the thing. I think that's that's. I mean, you 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 summarize it very well, and I think that's exactly the pro- the problem. So when you know government officials uh, across the globe, like when they are advocating or you know uh, ordering uh, TikTok ban to whatever extent it is, um, they are using usually as a justification. They are they are using uh, uh, data protection or the privacy concerns. Um, but if that was really the case, or if that was the true concern they had they would be concerned about the, all the other platforms because essentially TikTok is not doing anything different than Facebook or Instagram or probably any other uh, social media platform. But the main concern, it comes only from, you know, that kind of like uh, ownership behind the app and alleged or the potential uh, access to that data that they collect by um, by Chinese government. So in other words, you know, like if... if uh, 
if we are doing it in a way, it's fine. <laughs> but if someone else is doing it, then it's not fine. So, you know, that, that, that's what it comes down to. And, and uh, Milvan, is this sort of, I suppose, this kind of moral panic that appears to be attached to anything that is related to something that comes out of China, is, 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 is that something like we saw it with the, with the banner on Huawei doing the Australian, um, uh, I suppose, um, 5G network, is, yeah. is, is there a risk of, so, I guess, kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater here? Are we, are we, are we losing out by, by kind of blanket banning anything that has a relationship with China? Well, I, I can't. I, I can't really comment exactly on that. Probably it would be some sort of attention around that. I don't think that that would be the, the, the only on the main thing. I think it's literally, you know, TikTok is like a pawn in this geopolitical game between the West and the East, or between China and US and US satellites, so to say. And Australia is one of them. Um, I think what we would lose if we focus uh, slowly on banning TikTok. Um, only is we will lose opportunity to uh, maybe regulate a broader, you know, to introduce a broader set of regulation to really tackle that real and like, uh, I mean, existing issue around the data security and uh, privacy concerns that are legitimate. But I just don't think that they are only tied to TikTok. It would, it should come across across all social media platforms, but not even, not only maybe even just social media platforms. It should be anyone who is collecting any sort of personal information about the citizens should be kept accountable. Like, you know, what sort of data they are collecting, how are they going to use it, and maybe most importantly, how they're protecting. And we've, we've seen recently, I mean, just like I think last week or the week before, we had this incident with Latitude, and like over the last couple of months, there was a number of other incidents with uh, Medibank and Optus and, you know, so on. I think the list is very long. Um, so, and that was like a, a actual data, like a personal documents were stolen of citizens that could be heavily misused for a, a lot of malicious purposes, you know. And like, if you want to compare when, 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 when someone's uh, identification documents and like driver's license and you know, bank accounts and so on is, is stolen with maybe a video of someone dancing in their kitchen, like, what is the bigger concern? Like, what is the bigger safety uh, safety concern? So, just not to try, like, you know, I, I don't want to simplify this too much and say that there is no concern. So, obviously, I think behind the government, so it's not actually what you are doing on TikTok if you are recording video. Probably the main concern is not about the video itself. I think the main concern is if the app is actually accessing other data that you have. So, if you install TikTok on your, let's say, smartphone, so is the app going to, uh, uh, is TikTok accessing the other data that you might have on, 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 on that device as well? So, for example, if that's a government-issued uh, mm -hmm. device and if the officers are accessing their emails or maybe some confidential documents, I guess the concern is can TikTok see this other data? I think the phone manufacturers, especially like the Apple devices, but I think on the Android platforms, there are certain safeguards in, in, in place as well. They are kind of like convincing us or they are telling us not to worry that they are onto that. But again, I think the concern shouldn't be only on TikTok. I, I, I think it's a legitimate concern, but we should look across the board. Like, can any app that is installed on the device access anything else that is not uh, directly related to the use of that app? 
I think it's not just the the applications themselves and the way that they're sandboxed. We've also seen the uh, scrutiny that TikTok's in-app browser has had, and that goes for many other apps, Twitter as well, who has um, having in-app browsers that are mm-hmm. able to capture all of the data running through them by by virtue of being the medium through which they are transmitted. And exactly. in an environment where this is the case, where the data could, you know, that the, the sandboxing is one level or the OS level, but when you're looking at the applications itself, capturing data mm-hmm. about other applications through itself, um, in what kind of uh, structure would you think that a that data governance could be meaningful when it has so many intersecting ways for data to to get out? And not just talking about TikTok, but all apps have features like this, Absolutely, tracking yeah. pixels and other, you know, other kinds of things embedded in other places. When it's so interwoven, how is governance um, meaningful? Well, look, I'm not saying there is an easy fix to all of this. I'm not saying that the governance is easy. So the, the thing is that the technology is developing much like at a faster pace than we are able to regulate it, uh, and not just Australia, so that's, you know, across the globe. Mm-hmm. But still, there are some good examples, and I think that there are good policies that we can look at so we don't have to, you know, invent, uh, uh, reinvent the wheel. Um, so, for example, European Union has some really good uh, uh, policies in place for the data protection, and I think that would be a good start. So just looking how we can maybe translate their their governance framework into our context here in Australia. Definitely uh, worth investigating. We've been speaking with uh, Dr. Milvan uh, Savage from Swinburne University's uh, Centre for Excellence of Automated Decision-Making in Society. Milvan, thank you very much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Bite Into It on 3RRR with Lily and Dan. And something that's kind of... Uh, drawn our attention a little bit this week um lily have i've never heard of this a button thing have you heard about this week like it's a challenge to complete a game by pressing the a button as few few times as possible have you heard about this like like a nintendo game like a nintendo yeah. game yeah no i hadn't heard about that and like a speed running challenge or a yeah, challenge generally well i think it's just a challenge to see how like if, if you can actually get how far can you get through the game and, and like if you get through the entire game how few times can you press a particular button in this case the a button on the nintendo 64 okay so Super Mario 64, um, for those uh, who remember it back when it was released in 1998. Um, very, it, fond very fond memories. Very fond memories. Mario likes to jump. Mario has to jump a lot of the time. And in order to make Mario jump, you've got to press the A button. A, f- a few people um, now, I'm going to say a bit from Bismuth, whatever they are, um, have uh, highlighted that uh, you can get through Super Mario 64 in five and a half hours by making Mario jump 13 times. Okay. I have have questions. (laughs) Please. I I, I would like to hopefully have answers. So with the A button challenge, does Mm -hmm. that mean you don't push the the B, Y or X buttons or are you also prohibited from using the arrows? I think you're you're allowed to use the arrows. It's just about not touching the A button because – I mean, my, I'm not Only a gamer. Touching the a I, uh, oh no, yeah. Oh, so, so like you, you, you can press the other buttons as much as you like, or as much as you need to. But the, it's the number of A button touches that gotcha. counts. So okay. I'm, I'm, I'm learning about this on the fly. But right. I mean, I'm not, I, and I'm not a gamer. I will say that. But my limited experience with games is the A button is a pretty integral one because it's the one that does the most 
common action, mm. and so like in in the in the instance of Mario, it is it helps it makes him jump. So uh, look, if you've got five and a half hours, you can jump online and watch the full video of Mario sixty four being completed with thirteen jumps, which oh, is impressive. Okay. It's actually like if you think about it, like that's that's really impressive. I don't know. It's if it, it's really if you've if you've got five hours, so, maybe you want to do something else with your time. <laughs> I mean, to to speed run Super Mario sixty four, um, apparently the record at the moment is six minutes twenty seven seconds for all of Mario sixty four. Apparently, Whoa. I mean, this is this is what the internet is telling me. I'm sure that people will tell me I'm wrong if no. I'm wrong, but. Five hours doesn't feel like the. I mean, it well, maybe is this the slow cooker of speedruns? Is this like the? Yeah, let's, that, that sounds like a nice way of putting it. It's just, it's 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 rather than making Mario jump through the universe, you're taking him on a leisurely walk or a swim. That must be relaxing for him. I would hope so. I think I think Mario would appreciate that. I think yeah. It, hey, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure bringing you uh, radio this evening. Thank you very much uh, to our guests, uh, Dr. Rob Nichols from the University of New South Wales and Dr. Milovan Savic from Swinburne University of Technology. Lily, thank you for joining me in studio tonight. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. And also thank you to our talks producer for this week, Adam Christo, who's uh, been standing in for Elizabeth McCarthy while she takes some time off, and our podcaster, Carrie Smythe. We have been bite into it. It's been an absolute pleasure bringing you radio this evening. We will be back in some form next Wednesday evening, but coming up right now is uh, Mr. Anthony Carew with the International Pop Underground, so stick around for that. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or bite into its Twitter or Facebook accounts.